Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. things about our church is that a large majority of you uh, join our church uh, not from a uh, Presbyterian, Reformed Presbyterian background. Most of our membership comes from uh, other denominations, other traditions, or uh, new to the Christian faith altogether. And I celebrate that. We love that. But I also understand there's an assimilation process into this strange world of Presbyterianism. A lot of our uh, practices might be weird to you. Of course, the one we get the most probably is that we do baptize babies. Um, maybe the liturgy is strange, you know, confessing the Westminster catechisms, me preaching an address, all of these things. But inevitably there comes a point where some of our uh, new members are confronted with the most shocking practice of all. I joined a church where members drink alcohol. What have I done? Now, admittedly, we Presbyterians may enjoy that stereotype too much. One could argue the, uh, the PCA really stands for pipe, cigars, and alcohol. <laughs> but yes, we do believe it's appropriate for Christians to drink responsibly, and for some, that's heresy. First church, our uh, former senior pastor, John Sartell, uh, served as a little country church in uh, rural Virginia. Now, it was a Presbyterian church, but in that area of the country, uh, Presbyterian churches were simply Baptist churches that baptized babies, and so nobody uh, drank in the church. Well, surprisingly to no one who knows John, he wasn't playing by those rules, and it caused a stir. So uh, an older matriarch of the church, sweet country lady, comes to see him in his office and says, preacher, Christians shouldn't be drinking, and a pastor of all people cannot drink. And John said, why? Of course we shouldn't get drunk. That's obvious in Scripture. But why can't we drink in moderation? And she said, it's just wrong. And John said, why? And she says, it just is. So John gets his Bible out and he turns to some passages where, you know, wine is commended as a good gift of God to be enjoyed rightly. But her response every time was, this just isn't right. So finally he turns to John 2 where Jesus turns water into wine. And he says, look. Jesus himself turned water into wine so that the wedding party could enjoy it. What can you say to that? She paused. She looked at John as serious as could be and said, well, Jesus ought not to have done such a thing. (laughs) Now we laugh 
And if you don't want to drink, that of course is fine and wonderful. And if you have an addictive personality or some of you fighting the fight of sobriety, that choice is more than fine. That is a courageous moral conviction and I'm proud of you for it. But what's not fine is taking a personal conviction and binding the conscience of everyone as only scripture is allowed to do. We're not allowed to add our laws to God's law as though what God has commanded is insufficient. Now that may be trivial when it comes to something like alcohol, but when it comes to the issue of our passage this morning, it's a very serious problem. We're in a section of the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, where Jesus is challenging the different ways in which we tend to abuse God's law. Two weeks ago, we discussed our tendency to follow the letter of the law while neglecting the heart of the law. Last week, we discussed our tendency to find loopholes in the law to get around the law. This week, we're going to look at the temptation to just flat out add our laws to God's law because we don't believe God's law is enough. And conveniently, when we do this, it always tends to be a way of justifying our hatred of others. We add to the law to make the law exclude those we wish to exclude, reject those we wish to reject, indeed hate those we hate. We rewrite the law to make our enemies God's enemies. And so here's how we're going to look at it. We're going to look at this tendency first, and we're going to let Jesus confront it. So we're going to look at constructing religious hatred and then confronting religious hatred. So let's start with our tendency to construct the law to meet our religious hatred. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, if that sounds like a strange thing for the Bible to say, that's because the Bible never says it. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to hate our enemies. So what is Jesus quoting here? Well, he's not quoting his law, he's quoting their law. Clearly, God commands us to love our neighbor. It's explicit and repeated throughout Scripture. So there's no getting around that expectation. But what was the expectation towards those who were not our neighbors? You see, Israel existed within an era of tribal history. Your neighbor was interpreted as those who were a part of your tribe, and those outside your tribe were, by default, viewed as enemies. Now, one of the things that is revolutionary about Old Testament law was its view of outsiders. These uh, supposed enemies, the law had many provisions of hospitality toward them, toward aliens, strangers, foreigners, sojourners. Basically, God established what was unheard of in that time, a hospitable nation toward outsiders. So if you were to read the canon of Old Testament law, you should realize that it's obvious Israel was to love not just their tribal neighbors, but those traditionally viewed as outside enemies. But yes, it is true there is no explicit to command, no explicit command to love outsiders as there was a command to love our neighbor. And so in the absence of that explicit command, what happened was through uh, centuries of misinterpretation and misapplication and religious tradition, hate your enemy was added to the command to love your neighbor. Now, perhaps we could relate to the past few sermons I've preached on the law, but you might be tempted to say, well, here we cannot relate. Nobody here would have the audacity 
to change the canon of Holy Scripture by adding your words to it. But just because we wouldn't actually add to Scripture doesn't mean we don't construct our own rules, opinions, traditions, and so forth, and then treat them with the same authority as Scripture itself. Speaking candidly to our context of conservative evangelicalism, this is actually something we struggle with perhaps more than any other Christian tradition. We have a high view of Scripture in this church, as well we should. And when we think about what it means to have a low view of Scripture, we tend to think of those who take away from it, those who deny its miracles because they don't fit modern enlightenment, those who uh, deny its ethic because it doesn't fit modern morality and so forth. And we who hold a high view of Scripture say you can't do that. You can't take away from God's law. You can't rewrite God's law to make it palatable to the world around us. Okay, fair enough. But there's something else you can't do if you have a high view of Scripture. You can't add to it. And this is where we tend to fail. Liberal expressions of Christianity tend to treat the Bible as though it says too much. Conservative expressions tend to treat the Bible as though it doesn't say enough. And in this way, we canonize our opinions as God's opinions. Our rules as God's rules. Our traditions as God's traditions. We add our laws to God's law. And conveniently, what we, add, what, when, what we add tends to accomplish what we see happening in our passage. It's weaponized against others. That's always how it works. We're not tempted to add to God's word in a way that threatens our tribe. No, our additions always re-entrench our beliefs and practices and denounce the beliefs and practices of our enemies. Simply put, when we add to Scripture, it's conveniently an addition that proves I'm right and they're wrong. I'm good, they're bad. Our additions turn our enemies into God's enemies. Jonathan Haidt is a, a social psychologist who I highly recommend. He's, he's not a Christian, he's an atheist, but I highly recommend his research. In his massively important book, The Righteous Mind, he demonstrates the a human proclivity to spin everything to make it fit with what we already believe. He argues, I think convincingly, that the idea of a truly open mind is impossible. Instead, we have righteous minds, minds that are utterly convinced that we are right. And so what our minds do, he says, is act as a press secretary for our deeply held beliefs and practices. No matter what comes our way, we're going to spin it to make it fit our established conclusions. And this is true. He's coming at it um, from, uh, as a sociologist, but Scripture would affirm this, this fallen proclivity that everyone does. But that tendency becomes particularly destructive when you add religion into the mix. There's a reason why religions, historically speaking, have brought so much division to our world. Because our proclivity towards tribalism is given a transcendent motivation. It's not just us versus them. It's us with God on our side versus them. Religion baptizes our hatred of others by turning it into a morally justified hatred. Now, I'm talking very theoretical here, so let me show you what I mean practically. When we think of tribalism 
in our country, when we think us versus them and enemies and all that stuff in our culture, of course the first thing that comes to mind is our, uh, our partisan tribalism, our partisan divide. Enemies in our society tend to be political enemies. Now, we would never have the audacity to add to Scripture, thou shalt hate the other side of the aisle. But I have had people say, tell me this, direct quotes, you can't be a Christian and vote Democrat. On the other side, I have had direct quote, you can't be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump. Both of those things have been said to me. Okay, I'd like a chapter and verse, please. Open your Bible and find that for me. If you can't, then you have added your law to God's law. Now, what is appropriate is for you, guided by the scriptures, to come to a conclusion to vote a certain way. Everyone casts their votes based upon deeply held convictions. And for the Christian, those convictions originate in scripture. But what you can't do is take that conclusion and apply it to everyone. Only scripture gets to do that. To treat your belief as an absolute belief. When we do that, we have effectively added to Scripture. And in so doing, we have made our political enemies God's enemies. It doesn't have to be politics. I joked about alcohol. But what's really behind legalism within fundamentalist Christianity? Why would anybody want to add more rules to follow? Not just alcohol, but all of them. Rules that aren't in the Bible, but treated as just as important as the Bible. Why would anyone want more rules? Because those rules offer us something. Moral superiority over others. They are means of legalistic self-justification to prove that we are right and moral and others are wrong and immoral. Legalism at its core is a form of self-justification and others' condemnation. Again, a religious way to justify our disdain for outsiders. So I could go on and on with these examples, but I think you get the point. Brothers and sisters, woe to us who add to God's word in order to turn our religion of love into a religion of hate. It cannot be, and Jesus is going to confront us for doing so. So we've seen this proclivity to construct our religious hatred. Now Jesus will confront our religious hatred. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is fascinating. The easiest and obvious rebuke here is for Jesus to simply say, the law doesn't say that, right? You added to it. You can't do that. So he could have turned this into an exegetical discussion, but he doesn't. And the reason he doesn't is because it's not merely adding to the law, but the motivation behind adding to it that he's after. He cares far less about the fact that they have made the addition and far more about why they have made the addition. So in essence, he says, you want to talk about enemies? I'll tell you what to do with your enemies. Love them and pray for them. You see what he's done? He's now added to the law And only Jesus is allowed to add to the law because it's his law. He gets to say, he gets to say, fine, the law says you are to love your neighbor. It didn't explicitly command you to love your enemy. Well, let me with the authority of the son of God tell you what to do with your enemies. Love them and pray for them. And he takes it all the way to the unthinkable. He's not talking about outsiders who are different than us. 
that we have turned into enemies. He's talking about actual enemies who actively persecute you. Even them, we are to love. We are to pray for them. And if we are to love and pray for those who persecute you, then who, my friends, are we not to love? The answer, of course, is no one. Everyone. You should love everyone, not no one. Do that. And then he grounds his command with an argument. And the argument is this. You have added to Scripture to turn your enemies into God's enemies. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to tell God to think and act like you. God gets to tell you to think and act like him. And so that's what he does. Let's watch it unfold. Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So do you see how he has reversed it on us? Rather than adding to God's word, thus forcing God to reflect our beliefs and practices, the question we ought to ask is whether we are reflecting God. Do you look like you are sons and daughters of your heavenly Father? Because this is what your Father in heaven does. Continue on. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This fallen world is populated by people who deny their God, people who rebel against their God, people who serve allegiance to crafted idols of their own making rather than the one true God. What does God do with that population? Every single day, our sovereign God of the universe causes the life-giving sun to rise on everyone. He sends nourishing rain to bless everyone, not just the just, but the unjust as well. The most evil person on this planet is sustained every single day by God's common grace. And and his point is that we, the sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, are to do likewise. Continue on with 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Nobody was more hated than corrupt tax collectors, which is why Jesus uses them here. He says, your enemy, the tax collectors, love those who love them. Are you just trying to be like them? Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? They view the Gentiles as these outsider enemies, which again is why Jesus uses them. He says, the Gentiles... Greet only their brothers with hospitality. Is your goal to be like them? It's brilliant what he's done. He takes their enemies, quote-unquote enemies, those they hate and want nothing to do with, those they pride themselves on being different from and use their religion to justify it, and he says you're actually not different from them at all. If you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, then you are exactly like the enemies you hate. Here's the point. Everyone in this fallen world lives this way. Everyone subscribes to a form of tribalism that loves their neighbor and hates their enemies. Do you want to be like everyone else, or do you want to be like your Father in heaven, who on a daily basis blesses even those opposed to him? And then, if that motivation is not enough, Jesus cuts right to our hearts this morning with the ultimate motivation. He ends with 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Those words, you must be perfect as God is perfect, have effectively condemned 
every single one of us, for who among us dares to claim perfection? Even those who would say, I'm a good person, would never claim to be a perfect person. But that's exactly what Jesus is demanding. Perfect as God is perfect. And with that demand, Jesus has dismantled all forms of tribalism. And our proclivity to love those like us and hate those not like us. He brings it all to an end with the sobering recognition that all of us are together in this. We are imperfect sinners. We go about our days making enemies of each other while ignoring the ultimate truth that we are all at enmity with God. Nobody meets the standard of perfection. All of us are sinners. Everyone is an enemy of God. Well, I've got really, 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 really good news for all of us this morning. God's not like us. We hate our enemies. He loves his. I'm so glad that love your neighbor, hate your enemy was written by man, not God. Hallelujah, hate your enemy is not in the law of the Lord. For if it was in the law, then he would not break it. But he has no problem breaking our rules. My only hope and your only hope is that God would break our rules to hate our enemies and choose instead to love his enemies. According to the rules of this world, he should not do it. Indeed, according to the rules of justice, he should not do it. Back to this sweet old lady who said, Jesus ought not to have done that. Well, I'll tell you what Jesus ought not to have done. Hang from a cross for his enemies. He ought not to have done that. But bless his name, that is what he has done. Romans 5. Very rarely would someone die for another, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. That's the way our tribalism works, right? It's rare for someone to give their life up for another, though perhaps they would do so for a a good person, a person they viewed as good, someone they love, someone a part of their tribe. Maybe they would die for that person. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul puts it as plainly as he can. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Brothers and sisters, how? How can we who claim the blood of Jesus shed for his enemies respond with hatred towards those we view as enemies? Cursed be that thought. Now we're going to obey the rules of God, not the rules of tribalism. We're going to act like Jesus, not our world. And this is Jesus. This is what he commanded. And this is what he did. This is what is now, since he gave the sermon on on that mount, this is now what is recorded in Holy Scripture, never to be changed, never to be altered, never to be added to. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is now the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Father, give us your love that it might transform our love for others, not just um, those in our own tribe, those we see ourselves like and identify with, but Lord, give us love for those not like us, those we are tempted to slander and demonize, 
those who maybe persecute us, may we respond with prayer. Teach us to pray, Lord, for our enemies. We can't can't hate those that we're praying for. I pray that we would all take this seriously, your explicit command in this passage to pray for those who persecute us. Lord, would we pray for them and in this way love them. Lord, we come to your table of sacrifice, your love for enemies. Feed us with your love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.